It's Marathon Sunday. Welcome <laughs> to church. Uh, you are some of the few who made it past the closed streets and is missing out on the great party taking place here in Chicago. At present, as we speak, there are something like 50,000 people making their way through the route, uh, the road route of the Chicago Marathon. Uh, and I'm happy to report that, if my math is correct, 0.01% of those people our members at the painted door. So um, <clears throat> I believe that we have five participants in the Chicago Marathon this year. Some years we've had more, some years we've had fewer. Um, so go us, I guess, right? I don't know what our, <laughs> I'm not sure what our, what our mascot is exactly. Um, a sacrificial lamb, perhaps. Um, but uh, it's a good day to be a Chicagoan. Uh, the world is watching us today uh, and enjoying the glory that is Chicago putting on a big party. Uh, events like the Chicago Marathon actually have this tremendous power in them to evoke a certain civic pride in us. So today, people from all around our city, from every neighborhood of the city, will flock to the sidelines of the marathon route and will cheer alongside each other, will cheer as sort of one voice, as one city. And it's tempting, I think, when we look at that kind of solidarity to wonder if maybe, perhaps, the divisions and hostilities that are so rampant in our city may not run so deep. It's tempting to believe that maybe we're closer to moving beyond that than we thought. Uh, It's tempting to believe that when we look at events like the marathon, likewise other kinds of cultural events, Bears games, theatrical productions, the air and water show, these kinds of big cultural events that draw people together, and there's an expression of civic solidarity, it seems like, ah, was that so hard? And there's other iterations of solidarity that we witness in our daily lives that would tempt us to believe that same thing, that these divisions that are always so present in the news cycles may not run so deep. For example, friendships that cross historic divides or that bridge class and race and religion and political speech, Um, perhaps you've witnessed people befriending each other across those lines. Perhaps you've experienced friendship in your own life stretching across those divides. There are even people, many people in our city, who experience romantic relationships across those divisions. They date and they marry And I think in all of this, it is tempting for us to believe that the divisions of our city are solvable or somehow near solvable. But the trouble is that the resentments and fears that give birth to the divisions in our city and the divisions in our world actually run far deeper than the expressions of solidarity at cultural events or even the expressions of solidarity in friendship 
or marriage. The seeds of resentment and fear lurk down in the bones of all of us. So it's wonderful when we see things like the Chicago Marathon, other cultural events, and there's something bringing people together for a change. It's wonderful when people forge friendships and discover that they can enjoy people that are very different than them, that they can enjoy someone who sees the world in completely different ways than they do, even have conversation and learn from each other. It's wonderful when we see interracial marriage, people coming together as one flesh across these historic divides and hostilities. But these things have nothing whatsoever to do with a solution to the pervasive problems of resentment and fear, those seeds of resentment and fear that live in all of us. They actually run much deeper than any of those things. They, so, they run so deep, in fact, that we can typically go about our daily lives oblivious to them. The seeds that are in us, the seeds of resentment and fear, are so deep in our marrow that we can even experience peaceable relationships in our lives, being wholly oblivious to these things that lurk down inside of us, these monsters of the marrow, as it were. I was uh, sitting on my front patio this past week, enjoying a warm, wonderful, peaceful fall morning. And I looked across the way, and there was a man walking to the intersection that's at the end of my block. And just as he reached the crosswalk, as he was about to cross the intersection, a large SUV rolled up to the intersection, didn't really pay much attention to the stop line, and accelerated through the intersection, forcing this pedestrian, this man, to pause momentarily. I think it cost him the total of a third of a second. Um, but my very peaceful morning was no more afterward, uh, as the man proceeded to raise the double-fisted two-finger salute uh, and shout, and I quote, Beep! <clears throat> Uh, So that was the end of my peaceful morning. And I was sitting there, and I happened to be thinking about this particular sermon that I was going to bring this Sunday. Uh, And I thought, isn't that typical? Isn't that indicative of the kind of hostility that lurks within us all, that lurks just under the surface and gets exposed in various, albeit sometimes simple and silly Ways, So it may not be the case for you that you would ever demonstrate hostility in such a public display, such a public irreverent display. Please, if you're going to demonstrate hostility in that way, don't be wearing a Painador t-shirt while you do. I don't think we have Painador t-shirts, actually. Um, but there was a time when we did, and lanyards to boot. But uh, you may not demonstrate it in such a public way, um, But what about in the much more private constraints of, say, the driver's seat of your car? Or uh, for some of you in those still moments right before you fall asleep? Or in the relative anonymity of 
online comments sections, do you ever find that resentment, hostility, fear is percolating in your mind and heart? That the veneer of respectability that you typically project to the world is just that. And that there are dark things lurking underneath that surface. Do you ever find that your fears even lead you to things like prejudice? Do you ever find yourself dismissing someone because of their appearance or their dress or their political speech? Someone who votes like that, for example, I could never understand. Someone who votes like that isn't worth my time. It's not worth listening to that person, not worth understanding that person. All of us, I think, go about our daily lives with these kinds of seeds of monstrous resentment and fear and prejudice lurking deep in our souls. And the worst part of it is that many of us, most of us, all of us, won't acknowledge it. We don't live in light of that. We don't live and express ourselves in the world as though that were true. It's quite common, of course, for people to acknowledge that they're imperfect, to admit some kind of flaw publicly, if only to curry a little bit more favor as an honest and authentic person. But it's extraordinarily rare for someone to acknowledge that they have within themselves all of the material that produces things like racism, fascism, classism, all the worst isms. All of the expressions of those things in history live in every one of us in seed form. Every one of us carry them around and typically don't acknowledge that to others or to ourselves. Did you know, for example, that all of the dark personhood that gave rise to Nazism is in you? I'm not saying that we're all Nazis. Not at all. But I am saying that all of the fuel for Nazism is alive in you. In the same sense that all firewood is not on fire. But the fuel for a fire is present in every piece. The fuel for Nazism, the fuel for racism, the fuel for fascism is alive and well in every single one of us. The fuel for mass shootings is alive in every one of us. That's not a pleasant thought, of course, which is why we suppress it. We don't want to believe that the greatest evils of the world flow out of people just like us. We want to make distinctions. There's people over there that are broken in a particular way that I share no commonality with. I'm not the sort of person that could ever participate in that kind of an activity or that kind of evil. 
I can't go there. I'm just not that kind of person. We make these kind of distincting statements, separating ourselves from the worst sorts of people. The great uh, 20th century psychoanalyst Carl Jung, who some of you may know and have read, he, in his research of the human psyche, came to observe this actual universal reality. He saw this present in every person that he ever studied. And it was something called the shadow. He observed that every person has in them this shadow that Jung said stretches all the way to hell. In other words, every person has the capacity within them to commit the worst kinds of evil. Every one of us has the fuel within us to produce the world's worst evils. And he said that this shadow, he actually observed that the less a person is aware of this shadow or the less a person is willing to acknowledge that this shadow is in them, the more dangerous they are. In fact, that's the most dangerous kind of person. Young wrote this, Unfortunately, there can be no doubt that man is on the whole less good than he imagines himself or wants to be. Everyone carries a shadow, and the less it is embodied in the individual's conscious life, the less you're aware of it or acknowledging it, the blacker and denser it is. Young says, if you don't know that you have a capacity for evil, if your kind of general knowledge of yourself, general view of yourself is that you're fundamentally decent, then you are in grave danger of having the fuel of evil ignite within you. You're the most dangerous kind of person if you don't know the capacity for evil that is in you. History, of course, bears this out. The greatest atrocities of the last century, the 20th century being the bloodiest century in the history of the world, congratulations, human progress. The greatest atrocities of that century were committed by people with ostensibly good intentions. In fact, they were committed by people who were so convinced of the righteousness of their cause that they could not even notice the evil pouring out of them as they did it with their own hands. They weren't suspicious of themselves. They were absolutely convinced that they were on the right side of history. Absolutely convinced that they were in the right Take the Nazis, for example. They were convinced that they were accelerating the progress of Darwinism, that they were participating in this naturalistic progression of the species, and that they could accelerate it by disposing of those people they deemed less desirable so that we might move forward into a kind of super race and discover new and more beautiful human societies. And they were so convinced of the righteousness of that cause that they could not notice the unspeakable evils that it motivated them to commit. Likewise, the Bolsheviks in Russia convinced that they were moving society into a place of greater equity 
convinced that they were knocking down those who were in places of greed and power and elevating those who were in places of suppression, oppression. Every person according to his ability, every person according to his need, these great slogans that are born of self-righteousness, born of a belief that we're on the right side of history, that our cause is just. And in the name of that just cause, unspeakable evils were committed because people refused to consider their own shadow. If you don't know your capacity for evil, its expression will arouse no suspicion. It's not even a capability in your mind to acknowledge that you may be the evil one. But there is wisdom for us, thanks be to God, wisdom that has been spoken through the ages. God has told us, our maker, our creator, the one who has designed us, has told us through the ages, revealed to us through the ages, that we are indeed capable of these kinds of evil. He's told us in many ways and at many times. You see, it's not that evil is intrinsic to the human design. It's not that you were created evil. But evil is now intrinsic to the human condition. We've sinned our way here. We've sinned our way into this condition. The generations that have gone before us, all generations that have gone before us, have weaved darkness into the fabric of human personhood such that when we enter human personhood, we come into that dark place and we in turn then make our contributions to it. We add to this dark quilt by our sinful acts, by the evil that is in us. God's been warning us about this since humanity first turned toward the evil, first turned toward the darkness. That's the story of Genesis 3, of course, where God warns Adam and Eve not to take their life into their own hands, not to pursue goodness and beauty and truth apart from him, not to presume on their own decency and make their own way. And we see in the wake of that prototypical sin, these kind of horrific genocides that begin to happen, not there long after. The first murder takes place among the children of Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel. I've been telling my children over the kitchen table during breakfast. It's kind of a tough story to tell over breakfast, but it works well when you're telling it to siblings. But God warned Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It seeks to devour you. It seeks to be your master. It seeks to overtake you. And God's been warning humanity of that same thing ever since through his prophets. Beware of yourself. Evil is not out there somewhere. All of the evil that is out there is present within your own frame. Any evil that you see, let that be a mirror to give you great caution and slow yourself down. 
And in this present age, of course, God has warned us, he has spoken most clearly to us about the fuel and seeds of resentment and fear and evil within us through his own son, Jesus. When Jesus broke into the world, when God became flesh in the God-man, Jesus Christ, he demonstrated to us that sin is not intrinsic in human design. He lived a real human life in a non-evil way, which is to say humanity has great capacity to be spared from what is evil. But the life of Jesus, the human life of Jesus, cast so much light onto the earth that it exposed all the rest of us by comparison. Anyone who does not look at the life of Jesus and blush at your own life by comparison is fooling themselves. And many of us are fooling ourselves. Many of us like to hold on to the pretense that we have our own righteousness and the most dangerous people in our time and any time are not those who openly commit acts of evil. It's not the mass shooters and the corporate thieves. Those people are plenty dangerous. Don't get me wrong. But the most dangerous people in our time and any time are those who believe they can only do good. People who denounce Nazis with expressions of high-minded shock. How could anyone think that? How could anyone do that? Are you so naive to what lurks in your own marrow? Do you not know the lessons of history? Are we so convinced of our own righteousness? We're not righteous. We are dangerously broken. Every one of us. But we're not hopeless. Because God has not left us alone to address this sickness and brokenness within of our own accord or on our own as though we could. He has come to rescue us. Jesus didn't just come to expose us by way of his righteous life. He certainly did that. The righteous life of Christ does expose all of us and lay us bare. But also, and perhaps more importantly, Jesus came to forge a new way of being human. He came to create a way of being human that the world had never seen. He came to carve a path of humanness through this wilderness and swamp of sin and evil. And it's a way of being human. It's a new humanity that he offers to us, that he would give to us. that we could receive. Next week, we'll be diving headlong into examining the Apostle Paul's great letter to the Romans. And this great letter spans 16 chapters. 
Admittedly, chapters added later, but the letter is expansive and deals with topics ranging from race relations to personal turmoil to civic engagement, all manner of things expressed in this letter, but there is a central and recurring theme of the letter, something that cries out throughout the pages of the letter. And that theme, that central thesis of Paul's letter to the Romans is captured in these two verses of the first chapter that Corey read for us a moment ago, wherein the Apostle Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, you're not righteous. I'm not righteous. But God has revealed a righteousness in his son. He's revealed his own righteousness in his son, and he now offers us that righteousness by faith. Could could there be a more humbling or, dare I say, humiliating gift than righteousness? I mean, just imagine for a minute if you had a friend on your birthday give you a care package that had within it breath mints, a toothbrush, deodorant, and a bar of soap. (laughs) You would be tempted to ask, what exactly are you implying? <laughs> Do I stink? <laughs> God gives us righteousness. What are you implying exactly, Lord? <laughs> Does our righteousness stink? Yeah. Our righteousness smells like the 20th century genocides of recent history. And on a much less extreme, everyday, personal level, our righteousness smells like self-righteous sloganeering and outrage posturing. Putting forward a fraud of self-righteousness. Even though we know full well by way of first-hand evidence that we are not righteous. We're lying to the world and to ourselves. In the very important book, came out several years ago now, The Righteous Mind, commend it to you, by Jonathan Haidt from NYU. Haidt uncovers this persistent commitment of the human psyche to its own sense of righteousness. That every person is committed to telling them a story of their own righteousness. And that we are constantly, selectively remembering the events of our lives to hold that narrative up for ourselves. We're consumed with our own justification. With proving that we are decent and upright. That our life is worthwhile in some way. This is why people shout past each other, because we're so committed 
to the narrative of our own righteousness that we can't even conceive of the possibility that perhaps I'm the evil one in the conversation. So just double down on my own sense of righteousness and shout down the other person who's pointing out all my flaws. Height writes this, we lie, cheat, and cut ethical corners quite often when we think we can get away with it. And then we use all our moral thinking to manage our reputations and justify ourselves to others. In other words, we all fully know deep down somewhere inside of us that we are not righteous. We have firsthand testimony to incriminate ourselves. We have more testimony on ourselves. We have more goods on ourselves than any other person. We have witnessed firsthand ourselves lie and cheat, fabricate things, slander people, treat people unfairly, rage. And nevertheless, we use every faculty of our moral reasoning. We leverage all of our moral reasoning to project a reputation of decency and righteousness. That's what we're up to in our moral reasoning. And somehow we convince ourselves that what we're actually up to in our moral reasoning is a project to better the world. It's a fraud. What Paul is going to invite us to as we engage in his letter to the Romans is give it up. To let go of that whole fiction of your own righteousness. To just stop playing that game. Stop pretending that we are better than racists or fascists or liars. It's a pretense that is dangerous. It's a game that is exhausting. And we don't have to play it. Because the righteousness of God has been revealed. Because the righteousness of Jesus has been given. There's an alien righteousness. There's a righteousness from without, from outside of the members of our own bones. We don't have to look deep within ourselves to find the justification that we long for, find the righteousness that we long for, the story of decency that we long for. Jesus is our justification. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our covering. Jesus is the abdication of our guilt, the removal of our guilt. Jesus is the covering of our shame. Jesus is all that we need to justify our existence. His life is ours to live in. This is the great gift of the Christian faith to the world. The whole world is exhausting itself trying to prop up a fiction of its own righteousness shouting at each other to prove that we are on the right side. What if everyone could stop with that self-righteous guffawing, with that outrage posturing, with pretending that you have a leg to stand on when it comes to condemning the evil of others? What if we could stop pretending that we're the good guys 
What if the patriots of the United States could admit our country's heinous crimes? What if the political activists could acknowledge their lies? What if all of us who are posturing as on the right side could admit that we are not? That we have no business standing over anyone else? What if Christians could confess our utter failure to love our neighbor? Or to manifest any more of the life of Christ than the rest of the world? What if we all just gave up on this grand shell game of projecting our righteousness to everyone else and ourselves? Well, those would be miracles, of course. (laughs) And those would be the sort of miracles, actually, that run deeper than the marrow of our own bones. Those would be the sort of miracles that could undo all the sadness and heartache, make every sad thing come untrue. We can't overcome the brokenness of this world. But Jesus has done it for us. And his righteousness is ours by faith. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Would you send your spirit and fill this community of faith with his courage and his truth? that we would be people of broken-hearted confession, that we would be people who know that we are like everyone else, people who live at the foot of the cross with everyone else, people who offer what is true even when it greatly disadvantages us, even when it costs us reputation and leaves us looking foolish. Father, lead us to be the fools. Lead us to be the exposed ones and cover us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.